Hello, and welcome back to Bible Beginning to End, where we are reading through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. As we read, I won't be offering commentary, but I will be asking questions along the way to help you think and really sit with the scriptures and what God is saying to you about them. So there will be a lot of time for pausing and reflecting so that you can come up with your own conclusions about what the Bible is saying. I just want to remind everyone that if you're listening in 2023, this is an ongoing podcast. We have not finished the whole Bible yet, but we are working through it a little bit at a time. So yes, I am still recording, even though it takes me a while in between episodes. I am still recording and I am still working through this project. It is just current. So if you're looking for the next episode and wondering where it is, it's coming. It just hasn't been released yet. Right now we are reading through the New Living Translation. And last time we finished up First Samuel. So today we will be jumping in to 2 Samuel. So if you remember, 1 Samuel told the story of the Israelites after the time when they were ruled by judges, and it told the story of their first king, Saul. So think about what you remember about Saul. And then also we met David, the man who would become the next king of Israel. So think about what you remember about David from 1 Samuel. At the end of 1 Samuel, we saw the death of Saul, meaning that David was going to become king. So 2 Samuel will tell the story of David ruling over Israel as their king. So as always, as you read, sit And think about the scriptures, think about what they're saying, think about what God is saying to you, and really spend time in thought and in prayer as we read these scriptures together. So let's start with 2 Samuel chapter 1. This chapter is titled, David Learns of Saul's Death. 2 Samuel 1 verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from his victory over the Amalekites and spent two days in Ziklag. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's army camp. He had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head to show that he was in mourning. He fell to the ground before David in deep respect. Where have you come from? David asked. I escaped from the Israelite camp, the man replied. What happened? David demanded. Tell me how the battle went. The man replied, Our entire army fled from the battle. Many of the men are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. How do you know Saul and Jonathan are dead? David demanded of the young man. The man answered, I happened to be on Mount Goboa, and there was Saul, leaning on his spear, with the enemy chariots and charioteers closing in on him. When he turned and saw me, he cried out for me to come to him. How can I help? I asked him. He responded, Who are you? I am an Amalekite, I told him. Then he begged me, Come over here and put me out of my misery, for I am in terrible pain and want to die. So I killed him, the Amalekite told David, for I knew he couldn't live. 
and I took his crown and his armband, and I have brought them here to you, my lord. David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news. They mourned and wept and fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the Lord's army and the nation of Israel, because they had died by the sword that day. Okay, so pause there. Are you surprised by David's reaction to Saul's death? Knowing what you know of Saul and knowing what you know of David and their relationship, is this how you expected David and his men to react when they heard that Saul had died? And then who else did they mourn for? Who was Saul's son, Jonathan? Are you surprised by David's reaction to Jonathan's death, knowing what you know about David's relationship with Jonathan? Verse 13. Then David said to the young man who had brought the news, Where are you from? And he replied, I am a foreigner, an Amalekite who lives in your land. Why were you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed one? David asked. Okay, so pause there. Does that give you a little insight into why David responded the way he did to Saul's death? Why did he have such a high view of Saul despite the bad things that Saul had done? Verse 15. Then David said to one of his men, Kill him. So the man thrust his sword into the Amalekite and killed him. You have condemned yourself, David said, for you yourself confessed that you killed the Lord's anointed one. Okay, so pause there. Why did they kill the Amalekite man who confessed to killing Saul? Are you surprised that they killed him? What do you think is going to happen now that Saul is dead? The next section is David's song for Saul and Jonathan. Verse 17. Then David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan, and he commanded that it be taught to the people of Judah. It is known as the Song of the Bow, and it is recorded in the book of Joshua. Your pride and joy, O Israel, lies dead on the hills. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Don't denounce the news in Gath. Don't proclaim it in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice and the pagans will laugh in triumph. O oh, mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fruitful fields producing offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty heroes was defiled. The shield of Saul will no longer be anointed with oil. The bow of Jonathan was powerful, and the sword of Saul did its mighty work. They shed the blood of their enemies and pierced the bodies of mighty heroes. How beloved and gracious were Saul and Jonathan. They were together in life and in death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. 
O women of Israel, weep for Saul, for he dressed you in luxurious scarlet clothing, in garments decorated with gold. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies dead on the hills. How I weep for you, my brother Jonathan. Oh, how much I loved you. And your love for me was deep, deeper than the love of women. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen, stripped of their weapons. They lie dead. Okay, so pause there. That song that David wrote, what does it tell us about David's emotions right now? Does this song paint an accurate picture of who Saul was? Does it paint an accurate picture of who Jonathan was? Is this what you expected David to say, or did you expect him to have a completely different reaction? Did you learn anything new about Saul in this song? Did you learn anything new about Jonathan in this song? Did this song teach you anything about David? and who he is, and what his character is like. What did we learn about Jonathan and David's relationship? How deep was their friendship? Do you have any friends in your life that you have such a deep relationship and connection with? This was a very beautiful song that David wrote, and we'll hear many more from David when we read through the Psalms, which he wrote, but this is kind of one of our first glimpses into this gift that David has of sharing his emotion and expressing how he feels. Okay, so now we can start 2 Samuel chapter 2, which begins with a section called David Anointed King of Judah. Chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David asked the Lord, Should I move back to one of the towns of Judah? Yes, the Lord replied. Then David asked, Which town should I go to? To Hebron, the Lord answered. David's two wives were Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel. So David and his wives and his men and their families all moved to Judah and they settled in the villages near Hebron. Then the men of Judah came to David and anointed him king over the people of Judah. When David heard that the men of Jabesh-Gilead had buried Saul, he sent them this message, May the Lord bless you for being so loyal to your master Saul and giving him a decent burial. May the Lord be loyal to you in return and reward you with his unfailing love. And I too will reward you for what you have done. Now that Saul is dead, I ask you to be my strong and loyal subjects, like the people of Judah, who have anointed me as their new king. The next section is Ishbosheth proclaimed king of Israel. But Abner, son of Ner, 
the commander of Saul's army had already gone to Mahanaim with Saul's son Ishbosheth. There he proclaimed Ishbosheth king over Gilead, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and the land of the Asherites, and all the rest of Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he became king, and he ruled from Mahanaim for two years. Meanwhile, the people of Judah remained loyal to David. David made Hebron his capital, and he ruled as king of Judah for seven and a half years. Okay, so pause there. Why did the Lord send David to Hebron? And then why was David made king of Judah only, and not king over all of Israel? Do you think David will eventually become king over all of Israel? And if so, how do you think this is going to happen? The next section is war between Israel and Judah. Verse 12. One day Abner led Ishbosheth's troops from Mahanaim to Gibeon. About the same time, Joab, son of Zariah, led David's troops out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. The two groups sat down there, facing each other from opposite sides of the pool. Then Abner suggested to Joab, Let's have a few of our warriors fight hand-to-hand here in front of us. All right, Joab agreed. So twelve men were chosen to fight from each side. Twelve men of Benjamin, representing Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve representing David. Each one grabbed his opponent by the hair and thrust his sword into the other's side so that all of them died. So this place at Gibeon has been known ever since as the Field of Swords. A fierce battle followed that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by the forces of David. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think they had their warriors fight like this, with the swords? What were they trying to accomplish? Why was there tension between the tribe of Judah and the other tribes of Israel? And then why did this fight in this field of swords lead to a fierce battle? It says in the scripture that David's forces won that battle. What do you think that says about David? And what do you think that's going to lead to for David and his men? The next section is the death of Ashiel. Verse 18, Joab, Abishai, and Ashiel, the three sons of Zariah, were among David's forces that day. Ashiel could run like a gazelle, and he began chasing Abner. He pursued him relentlessly, not stopping for anything. When Abner looked back and saw him coming, he called out, Is that you, Ashiel? Yes, it is, he replied. Go fight someone else. Abner warned. Take on one of the younger men and strip him of his weapons. But Ashiel kept right on chasing Abner. Again, Abner shouted to him, Get away from here. I don't want to kill you. How could I ever face your brother Joab again? But Ashiel refused to turn back. 
So Abner thrust the butt end of his spear through Oshiel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He stumbled to the ground and died there. And everyone who came by that spot stopped and stood still when they saw Oshiel lying there. When Joab and Abishai found out what had happened, they set out after Abner. The sun was just going down as they arrived at the hill of Amma, near Gia, along the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Abner's troops from the tribe of Benjamin regrouped there at the top of the hill to take a stand. Abner shouted down to Joab, Must we always be killing each other? Don't you realize that bitterness is the only result? When will you call off your men from chasing the troops of Israel? All that night, Abner and his men retreated through the Jordan Valley. They crossed the Jordan River, traveling all through the morning, and didn't stop until they arrived at Mahanaim. Meanwhile, Joab and his men also returned home. When Joab counted his casualties, he discovered that only 19 men were missing in addition to Ashiel. But 360 of Abner's men had been killed, all from the tribe of Benjamin. Joab and his men took Ashiel's body to Bethlehem and buried him there in his father's tomb. Then they traveled all night and reached Hebron at daybreak. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 2. What was the purpose of this story of the death of Ashiel? Who were these three brothers, Joab, Abishai, and Ashiel? Who was Abner, the man that Ashiel was chasing, the man who ended up killing him? And then at the end of this section, why was it significant that when Joab counted the casualties, only 19 men were missing in addition to Ashiel, but 360 men were killed from the tribe of Benjamin? Who were Joab, Ashiel, and Abishai fighting for? Okay, so now we can start 2 Samuel chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. That was the beginning of a long war between those who were loyal to Saul and those loyal to David. As time passed, David became stronger and stronger, while Saul's dynasty became weaker and weaker. The next section is David's sons born in Hebron. These are the sons who were born to David in Hebron. The oldest was Amnon, whose mother was Ahinoam from Jezreel. The second was Daniel, whose mother was Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel. The third was Absalom, whose mother was Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth was Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith. The fifth was Shephatiah, whose mother was Abital. The sixth was Ithream, whose mother was Ekla, David's wife. These sons were all born to David in Hebron. So pause there, because one of the questions you might be asking is, why does David 
have so many different children with so many different wives and different women? Is this something God approves of, or is this just the historical retelling of what actually happened? Why do you think David had so many children by so many different women? What does that tell us about who he is? Is David perfect, or is he human? The next section is Abner joins forces with David. Verse 6. As the war between the house of Saul and the house of David went on, Abner became a powerful leader among those loyal to Saul. One day, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, accused Abner of sleeping with one of his father's concubines, a woman named Rizpah, daughter of Aya. Abner was furious. Am I some Judean dog to be kicked around like this? He shouted. After all I have done for your father, Saul, and his family and friends, by not handing you over to David... Is this my reward, that you find fault with me and this woman? May God strike me and even kill me if I don't do everything I can to help David get what the Lord has promised him. I'm going to take Saul's kingdom and give it to David. I will establish the throne of David over Israel as well as Judah, all the way from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. Ishbosheth didn't dare say another word because he was afraid of what Abner might do. Okay, so pause there. Who is Abner? And what did we just learn about him? How did he react to the accusation that he had slept with one of Saul's concubines? What did he claim he was going to do because of this? What do you think about his claim? Do you think that this is something he can live up to? Do you think this is going to be something he will actually do? Verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers to David, saying, Doesn't the entire land belong to you? Make a solemn pact with me, and I will help turn over all of Israel to you. All right. David replied, but I will not negotiate with you unless you bring back my wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come. David then sent this message to Ishbosheth, Saul's son. Give me back my wife, Michael, for I bought her with the lives of a hundred Philistines. So Ishbosheth took Michael away from her husband, Palti, son of Laish. Palti followed along behind her as far as Bahurim, weeping as he went. Then Abner told him, Go back home. So Palti returned. Meanwhile, Abner had consulted with the elders of Israel. For some time now, he told them, you have wanted to make David your king. Now is the time. For the Lord has said, I have chosen David to save my people Israel from the hands of the Philistines and from all their other enemies. Abner also spoke with the men of Benjamin. Then he went to Hebron to tell David that all the people of Israel and Benjamin had agreed to support him. When Abner and twenty of his men came to Hebron, David entertained them with a great feast. Then Abner said to David, 
let me go and call an assembly of all Israel to support my lord the king. They will make a covenant with you to make you their king, and you will rule over everything your heart desires. So David sent Abner safely on his way. Okay, so pause there. What does this section mean for David? What is going on here? Why is this section significant? The next section is Joab murders Abner, verse 22. But just after David had sent Abner away in safety, Joab and some of David's troops returned from a raid, bringing much plunder with them. When Joab arrived, he was told that Abner had just been there visiting the king and had been sent away in safety. Joab rushed to the king and demanded, What have you done? What do you mean by letting Abner get away? You know perfectly well that he came to spy on you and find out everything you're doing. Okay, so pause there. Why does Joab think Abner is a spy? Verse 26. Joab then left David and sent messengers to catch up with Abner, asking him to return. They found him at the well of Sira and brought him back, though David knew nothing about it. When Abner arrived back at Hebron, Joab took him aside at the gateway as if to speak with him privately. But then he stabbed Abner in the stomach and killed him in revenge for killing his brother Asahel. When David heard about it, he declared, I vow by the Lord that I and my kingdom are forever innocent of this crime against Abner, son of Ner. Joab and his family are the guilty ones. May the family of Joab be cursed in every generation with a man who has open sores of leprosy, or who walks on crutches, or dies by the sword, or begs for food. So Joab and his brother Abishai killed Abner because Abner had killed their brother Asahel at the Battle of Gibeon. Okay, so pause there. Joab made a very rash decision. Why do you think he made that decision to kill Abner so suddenly without discussing it with David? And then what do you think about David's curse that he puts on Joab's family? Do you think that he has the authority to make such a claim? Do you think that David's curse is fair and just? How do you think Abner's death will affect David's ability to become king over all of Israel? The next section is David mourns Abner's death. Verse 31. Then David said to Joab and all those who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on burlap, mourn for Abner. And King David himself walked behind the procession to the grave. They buried Abner in Hebron, and the king and all the people wept at his graveside. Then the king sang this funeral song for Abner. Should Abner have died as fools die? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not chained. No, you were murdered, the victim of a wicked plot. All the people wept again for Abner. David had refused to eat anything 
on the day of the funeral, and now everyone begged him to eat. But David had made a vow, saying, May God strike me and even kill me if I eat anything before sundown. This pleased the people very much. In fact, everything the king did pleased them. So everyone in Judah and all Israel understood that David was not responsible for Abner's murder. Then King David said to his officials, Don't you realize that a great commander has fallen today in Israel? And even though I am the anointed king, these two sons of Zeruiah, Joab, and Abishai are too strong for me to control. So may the Lord repay these evil men for their evil deeds. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 4. Why do you think David made such a big deal about Abner's death? Why did he take it so seriously, vowing not to eat and making all these statements about Abner after his death? Okay, now we can start the next chapter, chapter 4, 2 Samuel 4, which is called The Murder of Ishbosheth. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard about Abner's death at Hebron, he lost all courage, and all Israel became paralyzed with fear. Now there were two brothers, Bana and Rechab, who were captains of Ishbosheth's riding parties. They were sons of Rimmon a member of the tribe of Benjamin, who lived in Beareth. The town of Beareth is now part of Benjamin's territory, because the original people of Beareth fled to Gittim, where they still live as foreigners. Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him, and he became crippled. One day, Rechab and Bana, the sons of Rimmon from Beeroth, went to Ishbosheth's house around noon as he was taking his midday rest. The doorkeeper, who had been sifting wheat, became drowsy and fell asleep, so Rechab and Bana slipped past her. They went into the house and found Ishbosheth sleeping on his bed. They struck and killed him and cut off his head. Then, taking his head with them, they fled across the Jordan Valley through the night. When they arrived at Hebron, they presented Ishbosheth's head to David. Look, they exclaimed to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of your enemy Saul who tried to kill you. Today the Lord has given my Lord the king, revenge on Saul and his entire family. But David said to Rechab and Bana, The Lord who saves me from all my enemies is my witness. Someone once told me, Saul is dead, thinking he was bringing me good news. But I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. That's the reward I gave him for his news. How much more should I reward evil men who have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed? Shouldn't I hold you responsible for his blood and rid the earth of you? So David ordered his young men to kill him, and they did. They cut off their hands and feet and hung their bodies beside the pool in Hebron. 
Then they took Ishbosheth's head and buried it in Abner's tomb in Hebron. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 4. We have two of David's men killing Saul's son, Ishbosheth. What does this mean, dynasty, his genealogical line? Why did they include that parenthetical statement in verse 4 where they talked about Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who had a disability? Why did David's men decide to kill Ishbosheth? What did they think they were going to accomplish? What was David's response to his men killing Saul's son Ishbosheth? Knowing that Saul was David's enemy, what does this tell us about David and who he is and his character? Okay, so now we can start chapter 5, which starts with a section called David Becomes King of All Israel. 2 Samuel 5 verse 1 Then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, You will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. David was thirty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned forty years in all. He had reigned over Judah from Hebron for seven years and six months, and from Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah for thirty-three years. Okay, so pause there. David becomes king of all Israel. How significant is this in David's story? What does this mean for Israel? Is this part of God's plan for his people? The next section is David captures Jerusalem. Verse 6. David then led his men to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites, the original inhabitants of the land who were living there. The Jebusites taunted David, saying, You'll never get in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. For the Jebusites thought they were safe. But David captured the fortress of Zion, which is now called the city of David. On the day of the attack, David said to his troops, I hate those lame and blind Jebusites. Whoever attacks them should strike by going into the city through the water tunnel. That is the origin of the saying, the blind and the lame may not enter the house. So David made the fortress his home, and he called it the city of David. He extended the city, starting at the supporting terraces and working inward, and David became more and more powerful because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. Okay, so pause there. Why did David become more powerful? Who gave David his power? 
And why does David need this power? Why is it important that he conquer Jerusalem? Verse 11, Then King Hiram of Tyre sent messengers to David along with cedar, timber, and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built David a palace. And David realized that the Lord had confirmed him as king over Israel and had blessed his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. After moving from Hebron to Jerusalem, David married more concubines and wives, and they had more sons and daughters. These are the names of David's sons who were born in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Eber, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Okay, so pause there. So we have David as king, and then one of the first things that it says is that he married more concubines. Why do you think David struggles with this area of his life? What is an area you struggle with in your life? How can we lean on God to help us conquer our struggles? Okay, the next section is David conquers the Philistines. Verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel, they mobilized all their forces to capture him. But David was told they were coming, so he went into the stronghold. The Philistines arrived and spread out across the valley of Rephaim. So David asked the Lord, Should I go out to fight the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord replied to David, Yes, go ahead. I will certainly hand them over to you. Okay, so pause there. Why are the Philistines trying to attack David once they find out that he's been anointed king? Who are the Philistines and what is motivating this action? And then before David goes out to fight them, what is the first thing he does? And then what is God's response to David? And how is God showing that he is an active part, the leader of David's life and the leader of this battle? Verse 20. So David went to Baal Perazim and defeated the Philistines there. The Lord did it, David exclaimed. He burst through my enemies like a raging flood. So he named that place Baal Perazim, which means the Lord who bursts through. The Philistines had abandoned their idols there, so David and his men confiscated them. But after a while, the Philistines returned and again spread out across the valley of Rephaim. And again, David asked the Lord what to do. Do not attack them straight on, the Lord replied. Instead, circle around behind and attack them near the poplar trees. When you hear a sound like marching feet in the tops of the poplar trees, be on alert. That will be the signal that the Lord is moving ahead of you to strike down the Philistine army. So David did what the Lord commanded and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 5. 
The instructions that God gives David the second time are a little different than the instructions he gave him the first time. Why do you think the instructions here are different? And again, how do we see David asking and seeking God's wisdom in each of these instances? And how do we see God answer David? How do we see God be the leader of this battle? What can we learn for our own lives about how to listen to God and how to go to God first with our needs and our desires and our questions and really sit with them and pray and hear from God? Okay, so now we can start 2 Samuel chapter 6, and this starts with a section called Moving the Ark to Jerusalem. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the Ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Okay, so pause there. Do you remember what the Ark is? The Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of God. What is it? What is held inside of it? And what purpose does it serve within the Israelite community? Verse 3. They placed the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio Abinadab's sons were guiding the cart that carried the Ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the Ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, cassinets, and cymbals. Okay, so pause there. Picture the scene in your head. Why do you think the people of Israel were celebrating before God? How were they expressing their celebration and love for God? Do you ever find yourself so full of the Spirit that you have an outpouring and a physical expression of worship for God? If you do, what does that physical expression look like? How do you express your love and worship for God? If that's something that you struggle with and you don't necessarily feel that all the time, why do you think that is? We all have different expressions and ways that we worship. And so it's important to remember how and why. We show our love for God. Verse 6. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nakan, the ox stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. Okay, so pause there. Why did God react this way? 
what law or regulation had Uzzah broken? David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, as it is still called today. David was now afraid of the Lord, and he asked, How could I ever bring the Ark of the Lord back into my care? So David decided not to move the Ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Abed-Edom of Gath. The Ark of the Lord remained there in Abed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed Abed-Edom and his entire household. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think David was now afraid of the Lord? Why do you think he decided to find a new place for the Ark of the Covenant? Verse 12. Then King David was told, The Lord has blessed Abed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went there and brought the Ark of God from the house of Abed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. Okay, the next section is Michael's contempt for David, verse 16. But as the Ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think Michael was filled with contempt for David when she saw him worshiping, leaping, and dancing before the Lord? Verse 17. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord, who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrated before the Lord, yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. Okay, so pause there. Now that you've read the context, why was Michael upset? 
with David for dancing before the Lord. And what was David's reason for dancing and celebrating? What lesson can be learned here about focusing more on God and less on what other people think? Will we sometimes look foolish to other people when we worship God? Will we sometimes look different or do things in a way that other people may not understand? How can we be content in the fact that we will look different to the world, but we are following the call of God and following his desires for our lives and following the things that he's putting on our hearts in the way that we treat other people, in the way that we treat ourselves, in the way that we treat each other, our families, and in the way that we react to situations. We might look different to the world and we might have people like Michael say things to us, but how should we respond? How should we love those people? How do you feel about David's response to Michael? Did he handle it in the right way? Or do you think he should have done something differently? Okay, so now we can start chapter 7, which is called The Lord's Covenant Promise to David. 2 Samuel 7 verse 1 When King David was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, I am living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent? Nathan replied to the king, Go ahead and do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house. From the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day, I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I have never asked them, Why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Now go and say to my servant David, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on earth and I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past. Starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, 
and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod, like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord had said in this vision. Okay, so pause there. Why did David want to build a house for God? And then we have Nathan getting this message from God. What does God say in this message? What does God's response reveal about who he is, his character? Did you learn anything about God in this passage? Is God in favor of David building this house, or is this something God does not want David to do? And then in this section, we also have God making a covenant promise with David. What is that promise that he makes? What other covenant promises have we seen God make in the Old Testament? What does this promise mean for David? Why do you think God is choosing to make this covenant promise known now? The next section is David's prayer of thanks. Verse 18. Thinking David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, Sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty, do you deal with everyone this way, O Sovereign Lord? What more can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like, Sovereign Lord. Because of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known to your servant. Okay, so pause there. What is David saying at the beginning of this prayer of thanksgiving? How is he taking the focus off of himself and putting it on to God? Verse 22. How great you are, O sovereign Lord! There is no one like you. We have never, ever heard of another God like you. What other nation on earth is like your people, Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your own people? You made a great name for yourself when you redeemed your people from Egypt. You performed awesome miracles and drove out the nations and gods that stood in their way. You made Israel your very own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, I am your servant. Do as you have promised concerning me and my family. Confirm it as a promise that will last forever, and may your name be honored forever, so that everyone will say, 
The Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, I have been bold enough to pray this prayer to you because you have revealed all this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings, for you are God, O sovereign Lord. Your words are truth, and you have promised these good things to your servant, and now may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you have spoken, and when you grant a blessing to your servant, O sovereign Lord, it is an eternal blessing. Okay, so pause there, and just reflect on that prayer of thanksgiving that David just gave to God. I just want you to take a moment to think about the words that were said, how he approached God, and how he affirmed who God is, and really showed a true humility and thanksgiving in that prayer. What can we learn from this prayer about how we should pray to God? Is this an important moment in David's life? And if it is, how so? What does this moment mean in the history of the church and in the history of Israel? Okay, so the next chapter is Second Samuel 8, David's military victories. Chapter 8, verse 1. After this, David defeated and subdued the Philistines by conquering Gath, their largest town. David also conquered the land of Moab. He made the people lie down on the ground in a row, and he measured them off in groups with a length of rope. He measured off two groups to be executed for every one group to be spared. The Moabites, who were spared, became David's subjects and paid him tribute money. David also destroyed the forces of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when Hadadezer marched out to strengthen his control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He crippled all the chariot horses except enough for a hundred chariots. When Arameans from Damascus arrived to help King Hadadezer, David killed 22,000 of them. Then he placed several army garrisons in Damascus, the Aramean capital. And the Arameans became David's subjects and paid him tribute money. So the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think this section about all of David's victories comes right after God makes this covenant with David? And who is given the glory for these victories? Is it David or is it God? Verse 7. David brought the gold shields of Hadadezer's officers to Jerusalem along with a large amount of bronze from Hadadezer's towns of Teba and Barothai. When King Twa of Hamath heard that David had destroyed the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to congratulate King David for his successful campaign. Hadadezer and Twa 
had been enemies and were often at war. Joram presented David with many gifts of silver, gold, and bronze. King David dedicated all these gifts to the Lord as he did with the silver and gold from the other nations he had defeated, from Edom, Moab, Ammon, Philistia, and Amalek, and from Hadadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobah. So David became even more famous when he returned from destroying 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He placed army garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became David's subjects. In fact, the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel and did what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was commander of the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was the royal historian. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sariah was the court secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was captain of the king's bodyguard. And David's sons served as priestly leaders. Okay, so pause there. How far has David come since he was chosen by God to be the future king of Israel until now? And who does it say is giving David all of these victories? And then we have this little section at the end where it talks about each person in David's court, so to speak, or or the people around David, the leaders of Israel, and their specific role in the community. Why is it important for us to know that and to see that? I want you to think about your role, your giftings, what God has called you to do, what gifts God has given you, and how you can use them to lead in your church or in your community, to be a godly leader wherever you go, to use those giftings. What is God calling you to? What is God showing you in your life as a way that you can use your gifts for his kingdom? Okay, so now we can move on to chapter 9, which is called David's Kindness to Mephibosheth. 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. One day David asked, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? the king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked, Is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, Yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think David is looking for someone from Saul's family? Do you remember David's connection with Jonathan? What kind of relationship did they have? It says that he wants to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. So who was Jonathan and why would David want to show kindness to someone in Jonathan's family. Verse 4. Where is he? 
the king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Mocker, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Mocker's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Okay, so pause there. How did Mephibosheth greet David? Why do you think he greeted him in this way? Verse 7. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant, Ziba, and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Ziba replied, Yes, my lord, the king. I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table, like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Okay, so pause there. What does this story tell us about David and who he is? Whenever we see a character in the Bible do something, we want to reflect on what is that showing us about this character, who they are, what motivates them, what kind of person they are. How do you think Mephibosheth and his family feel at this time being treated this way by the king? What can we learn from this story about how we should treat each other? Okay, so now we can start chapter 10, which is called David Defeats the Ammonites. 2 Samuel 10, verse 1. Sometime after this, King Nahash of the Ammonites died, and his son, Hanun, became king. David said, I am going to show loyalty to Hanun, just as his father Nahash was always loyal to me. So David sent ambassadors to express sympathy to Hanun about his father's death. But when David's ambassadors arrived in the land of Ammon, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanun, their master, Do you really think these men are coming here to honor your father? No. David has sent them to spy out the city so they can come in and conquer it. So Hanun seized David's ambassadors and shaved off half of each man's beard, 
cut off their robes at the buttocks and sent them back to David in shame. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think the people in Hanun's army thought that David was sending spies? What was David's actual motivation for going to the land of Ammon? Verse 5. When David heard what had happened, he sent messengers to tell the men, Stay at Jericho until your beards grow out, and then come back. For they felt deep shame because of their appearance. When the people of Ammon realized how seriously they had angered David, they sent and hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from the lands of Beth, Rehob, and Zobah, 1,000 from the king of Maka, and 12,000 from the land of Tob. When David heard about this, he sent Joab and all his warriors to fight them. The Ammonite troops came out and drew up their battle lines at the entrance of the city gate, while the Arameans from Zobah and Rehob and the men from Tob and Maka positioned themselves to fight in the open fields. When Joab saw that he would have to fight on both the front and the rear, he chose some of Israel's elite troops and placed them under his personal command to fight the Arameans in the fields. He left the rest of the army under the command of his brother Abishai, who was to attack the Ammonites. If the Arameans are too strong for me, then come over and help me, Joab told his brother. And if the Ammonites are too strong for you, I will come and help you. Be courageous. Let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. Okay, so pause there. Why are they going into this huge battle? And what is Joab's mindset going into battle? What is that final line that he just said? May the Lord's will be done. Why is it important that that's what he says before he goes into battle? Verse 13. When Joab and his troops attacked, the Arameans began to run away. And when the Ammonites saw the Arameans running, they ran from Abishai and retreated into the city. After the battle was over, Joab returned to Jerusalem. The Arameans now realized that they were no match for Israel. So when they regrouped, they were joined by additional Aramean troops summoned by Hadadazer from the other side of the Euphrates River. These troops arrived at Helam under the command of Shobak, the commander of Hadadazer's forces. When David heard what was happening, he mobilized all Israel, crossed the Jordan River, and led the army to Helam. The Arameans positioned themselves in battle formation and fought against David. But again, the Arameans fled from the Israelites. This time, David's forces killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers, including Shabak, the commander of their army. When all the kings allied with Hadadazer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they surrendered to Israel and became their subjects. After that, the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites. 
Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 10. How did David and the Israelites win this battle? Is this a significant battle for Israel? What does this win, this victory mean for the people of Israel? Okay, so now we can start 2 Samuel chapter 11, which starts with a section called David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Okay, so pause there. First of all, what's the situation going on? What are we learning about David? What are some of his shortcomings? A lot of times we see the good about David, but here we see where he struggles and the sin in his life. So what are we learning about his character? What is something that David struggles with? How do you feel about David's actions here so far? Verse 6. Then David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, Go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Okay, so pause there. What are we learning about Uriah, Bathsheba's husband? What kind of man is he? Does he have a good, strong character, good, strong values? Verse 12. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife, 
Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Okay, so pause there before we start the next section. What is David trying to do? What is his plan here with Uriah? How is David trying to avoid his responsibilities rather than own up to what he's done? The next section is David arranges for Uriah's death. Verse 14. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Okay, so pause there. Now what has David done? His first plan didn't work. So now, what is he doing? What do you think about David's actions here? And do you think that Joab is also to blame in Uriah's death? Verse 18. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, Report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, Why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Tebez by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said. And as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today, and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Okay, so pause there. Why does it say the Lord was displeased with what David had done? What was the initial sin that David committed that got him caught up in this mess? And then, what other sins did he commit along the way trying to hide his actions? How do you think David should have handled this situation? How do you think God is going to react to this sin that David has committed? Okay, so now we can start our last chapter for today, which is chapter 12, and that starts with a section called Nathan Rebukes David. Second Samuel 12, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich, and one was poor. 
The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. Okay, so pause there. The Lord has sent this story to Nathan the prophet, and Nathan has been tasked with telling this story to David. What is the meaning behind this story? What is God actually trying to communicate? Verse 5, David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Okay, so pause there. How did David react to this story, this sort of parable that Nathan tells? Is there any irony or hypocrisy in David's reaction? Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Okay, so pause there. Now we see the meaning behind the story. What do you think of God's words here? What do you think of his punishment for David? Do you think David will repent? Do you think David will see the error of his ways? And we see God's anger here. Do you think his anger is justified? But just because God is angry, does that mean he doesn't love David? Or do we still also see God's love even in this situation? Okay, the next section is David confesses his guilt. Verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan... I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, 
the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him that the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead? he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. Okay, so pause there. Did God forgive David? But what was David's punishment? And you might be asking yourself, why would God punish David like this, taking away the child? Why do you think that was the punishment? This may be a tough passage to read and a tough passage to hear because you might be thinking, this child was innocent. Why would his life be taken when David was the one who committed the sin? And I would encourage you to sit in those questions and really think through them and ask yourself, what does it mean? Why did it happen like this? What was God doing here? It's important to ask those questions and to take the time to really pray and meditate on them. And then how do we see David react? Do we see a true change of heart in David? Do we see him repent of his sins? Verse 21. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again? David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive, for I said, Perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means Beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. Okay, so pause there. Now we have David and Bathsheba having another son, and this time the Lord blesses that child. What's the difference here? Why is this situation so different than the last one? Okay, our last section for the day is David captures Rabbah. 
Verse 26. Meanwhile, Joab was fighting against Rabbah, the capital of Ammon, and he captured the royal fortifications. Joab sent messengers to tell David, I have fought against Rabbah and captured its water supply. Now bring the rest of the army and capture the city. Otherwise, I will capture it and get credit for the victory. So David gathered the rest of the army and went to Rabbah, and he fought against it and captured it. David removed the crown from the king's head, and it was placed on his own head. The crown was made of gold and set with gems, and it weighed 75 pounds. David took a vast amount of plunder from the city. He also made slaves of the people of Rabbah and forced them to labor with saws, iron picks, and iron axes, and to work in the brick kilns. This is how he dealt with the people of all the Ammonite towns. Then David and all the army returned to Jerusalem. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think this little section of David having victory over Rabbah comes at the end of this chapter? What do you think is important about this section? All right. We've gone through a lot with David at the beginning of 2 Samuel, and we'll continue hearing about his reign as king as the book continues. But I really want you to just think about what we've read today, meditate on it, pray about it, ask the questions, think about the things that you are unsure of, go back to sections that you have more questions about. After you've sat with them, maybe then seek out commentary and see what other people, other scholars of the Bible, are saying. And I really hope you enjoyed our time today and really got closer with God and closer in the Word. I'm so thankful for each and every one of you who listen. I'm thankful for all the emails I receive, even if I haven't gotten around to answering them all or am not able to answer them all. I try to answer as many as I can but I'm thankful for each and every story you guys send me and each and every story you guys trust me with. So thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you in the next one.